0: Well, good morning to you. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. We're continuing in our series this morning through the Gospel of Matthew called His Kingdom Come. Uh, we've seen a lot of different aspects of the life of Christ so far. Uh, we've seen his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we saw that he is the miracle worker. Uh, and this morning, we're gonna be introduced to, to Jesus as the master storyteller. Uh, We pick it up in Matthew chapter 13. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and grab that. And uh, we're going to start what scholars call the great parabolic discourse of Matthew 13. Uh, This is the first time where Jesus speaks in parables here. And uh, a parable is just simply a made-up story to make a spiritual point. It's a a story from the physical world to illustrate a spiritual uh, truth. And I love Stories. I love a good story. Stories are exciting to me. And Jesus, our Lord and Savior, knew the power of stories because he knew they could engage our imaginations and capture our hearts and also grab our attention. Turn with me to Matthew 13, where Jesus gathers together this very large crowd, uh, so large to the point where he actually has to get out into a boat uh, and, and he sits behind, beside what, what is kind of a natural uh, amphitheater uh, at, at, beside the Sea of Galilee. They actually think they found the place where Jesus taught the parables. It would look something uh, like this. This is actually the very place that they call the Cove of the Parables. And so he gets out into a boat right there, and there's, there's thousands of people on the hillside. And he, 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 for the first time ever, speaks what will become these very famous words. It produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, just to kind of give you an idea of how unusual this was, I know you've heard this story before, but just pretend for this morning that you've never heard this story before. Picture the scene. There you are. You're by the lake. There's Jesus, the Messiah, uh, the long promised king. He's been expected for thousands of years. He's got all these people gathered around him. He has their attention and he finally gets a chance to say what he needs to say. And what he does is he tells them some stories about seeds and soil and wheat and weeds. What's the point of all that? I mean, just imagine, let's say one of our local city leaders calls a town hall meeting. And uh, maybe at the local high school, they say, you know, we've got a big announcement. We're going to roll out something big. Uh, You know, the whole town's welcome to come. And so this particular city official uh, gathers us together there. There's a couple thousand of us uh, gathered at this high school. They get up to the front and they say, you know, there's all kinds of pizza places in this part of New Jersey. You got Panettieri's and their calzone is tasty. And then you got Cafe Figaro, and their deep dish Sicilian is savory. And then you got Siena's, and, and their Stromboli is spicy. And then you got Domino's, and their garlic bread is cheesy. He who has ears to hear, <laughs> let him hear. What in the world? These words are baffling. What does all this mean? And and further, what does it mean to us 2,000 years later? That's what I want to talk to you about today. Matthew chapter 13 has these seven parables. We're not going to look at all of them. We don't have time. But I want to look at three of them with you and trust that you'll read the rest later. So for the purposes of this sermon, we're going to look at three. We're going to look at the parable of the sower the parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the hidden treasure. And what you're going to see is that they all relate to one another. That's the plan. Before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we open up your word now with a spirit of humility. Thank you for preserving these stories so that they might touch our hearts even today. But we pray that you would give us ears to hear so that we might hear. For Christ's sake, for his reputation... Amen. The parable of the sower. The parable of the sower is somewhat foundational to understanding the rest of the parables here. And to understand the parable of the sower, you have to understand the context of Jesus' ministry at this point in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, if you recall, is an argument. It is an argument that Jesus is the king, and he is not just the king, but he is the king that was expected, and it's not just that he was expected, it was that he was the king of Israel, but he has come not just to be the king of Israel. Matthew is telling us that his kingdom is going to expand to all the nations. And so we've seen him make this case several times through the genealogy, Uh, through his miracles, authenticating who he is, and so on. But the question the readers have at this point in the Gospel of Matthew is that, if he really is the king, if this is the guy, if the kingdom of heaven really is at hand and it was and is, then how come that kingdom is not immediately taking over? How come instead there's all these mixed reactions? Like, for example, how come, you know, we see the disciples might be drawing close to him, but then there's all these crowds, and how come they're so fickle about it? And how, the religious leaders, they seem to even be like turning against him at this point. How, how can we explain that? What in the world is going on here? We're starting to wonder like John the Baptist in chapter 12. Is this the Messiah that was supposed to come? Or should we look for another? And to answer that question, Jesus gives us these parables, the first one being the parable of the sower, to tell us something about the nature of, of Jesus's kingdom and how he's gonna roll out that kingdom program. And as he does so, there will be mixed reactions, some positive, some neutral, some scathingly negative. So Let's take a closer look at some of the components of this parable. The first point that you need to know is this, the sower in the parable is the son of man. Can we say that together? The sower is the son of man. Now a sower is just another name for a farmer, somebody who would sow seed into the ground. That's Jesus, and right away in this image, he's telling us something very, very different about his kingdom when you compare that kingdom to any other earthly kingdom. When Alexander the Great brought his kingdom, he did so through conquest, through military might. Same thing is true today, right? When, when Putin invaded Georgia, uh, he did so through military conquest. Jesus says, my kingdom is not really gonna come out that way. It's not gonna come with a sword. It's more like a seed. My kingdom's not gonna come in so loudly, it's gonna be more quietly. It's gonna be internal, not external. It's gonna be gradual, not so drastic. Dan Doriani says this regarding the kingdom of our Lord. It comes as a whisper, not a shout. Jesus comes as a sower, not an army commander. See, the kingdom of heaven comes by hearing. So be careful how you hear. Number two, if the sower is the son of man, then the seed is the gospel. Can we say that? The seed is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. But what I want you to notice here is that this farmer spreads this seed literally everywhere to the point where you read the story and you're starting to think, what kind of careless farmer is this? perfectly good seed. He throws it on the side of the road, on the path, among the thorns. Isn't this wasteful? How come he's not being a little bit more careful? You you, you might want to aim a little better, buddy. Can you be a little bit more choosy as you cast this seed? Do you realize you have this huge rate of failure? Now that would only be a problem if there was a shortage of seed. You see, the gospel of Jesus' kingdom is the gospel of whosoever will may come. And Matthew is telling us that Jesus did not come simply to do something narrowly for the kingdom of Israel. It's bigger than that. He came for the world. And so this sower, this farmer, engages in a universal sowing. Now, why would he use this seed metaphor? To answer that, I just want to pause and look for a moment at a different parable in this chapter, the parable of the mustard seed. Let your eyes drop down to verse 31. As Jesus says later, these words the kingdom of heaven is is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field though it is the smallest of all seeds yet when it grows it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches so the mustard seed was the smallest of all cultivated seeds Yet it could grow fairly large. In fact, here's a picture. Jesus says, my kingdom starts very small, but it will grow very, very big. At first, it looks vulnerable and weak. It looks completely underwhelming. Some people will even scorn it. Some people will even laugh at it. They won't recognize its impact, but that is a big mistake. Because Jesus says this, my kingdom will grow from an insignificant beginning to an extravagant ending. An insignificant beginning, extravagant ending. Extravagant ending. just think about what we've seen so far in the Gospel of Matthew. It began with a baby in a manger in the middle of sheep and cows and goats, virtually exiled to Egypt, and then brought to, of all places, Nazareth. And now this man has gathered a small handful of disciples who are rather weak and inept, but yet they will be the ones to impact the world. Ken Latteret, a historian, who received his PhD from Yale, wrote this seven-volume work called The History of the Expansion of Christianity. And inside, he asked this thoughtful question. He says this, why among all the cults and philosophies competing in the Greco-Roman world did Christianity succeed? Now, that's a good question. Why did it succeed despite getting even more severe opposition than any other. Why did it succeed though it had no influential backers in high places but consisted mainly of the poor and slaves? How did it succeed so completely that it forced the most powerful state in history to come to terms with it and then outlive the very empire that sought to uproot it? And then he says this, it is clear, it is clear, it is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity there must have occurred a vast release of energy, perhaps unequaled in our history. Without it, the future course of the Christian religion is inexplicable. That's the power of the seed. It's still growing today. Romans chapter one. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. As Charles Wesley wrote, Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. That's the power of the seed. Number three, the soil is the human heart. Can we say that? The soil is the human heart. When it comes to the human heart, there's four mixed reactions. Same seed, four different responses. Response number one, the hard soil represents the hard heart. These are the people who hear the message of the kingdom of Jesus, but it doesn't penetrate, it doesn't get through. Their heart is hard, pretty straightforward. This is the person when you share the gospel, they're just not interested, but it's not because they didn't understand you and it's not because you weren't very persuasive and it's not because the message isn't powerful. It's because they don't hear because they don't wanna hear. They don't see because they don't wanna see. And the reason is because ultimately they want to live their own lives their own way without accountability, so their heart is hard Their mind is made up. Grant Osborne says, this is not inadvertent ignorance, but studied rejection, a sin with a high hand. Listen to this response from outspoken atheist Aaron Ra, director of the American Atheist Association. He recently ran for the Texas State Senate, and one time a Christian asked him, if I could prove to you that the God of the Bible exists, so that you're satisfied, would you worship him? And he said, no. If I believe that God exists, and if I believe that it was the Bible God that exists, then I would not worship it, because it is a criminal thing. Now, if a better God existed than the God of the Bible, I still wouldn't worship it, but at least it would be worthy of respect. It's the hard soil. They don't hear because they don't want to hear. They don't see because they don't want to see. Later, Jesus says the enemy comes, Satan comes and steals that seed away. It's a very serious warning. This is why Jesus says, Whoever has ears, let them hear. The main issue in this parable has to do with hearing, receptivity. In fact, 19 times in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus uses the word for hear. Verse 13, though hearing, they do not hear. Verse 16, blessed are your ears because they hear. Verse 17, the prophets long to hear what you hear. The kingdom of heaven comes by hearing, therefore be careful how you hear. You ever meet people that are just terrible, terrible listeners? Like they just not, they're just not listening at all. I'm talking, it's not, it's not going through. Now, we husbands are notorious for being bad Listeners, I saw this funny meme the other day on the internet. My wife just stopped and said, you, you weren't even listening, were you? And I, I thought, this is a pretty weird way to start a conversation. You get it? She, she was talking the whole time and you were, not never mind. Sometimes we can be this way, not just in marriage, but sometimes we can be this way with, with God's word. We don't listen. Here we're going through a series through Matthew for, for three months. We're, we're listening to the actual words of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I can't think of anything more important to listen to. Just imagine if you could be on that beach that day and listen to the, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the words of the, these parables. Wouldn't you want to hear what he has to say? That's what we're looking at. I wonder if God could speak to me and ask, Dave, are you really listening now, when my wife accuses me of not listening, I feel immediately defensive. I'm like, yes, I certainly was listening. I was listening, <laughs> even if I wasn't. <laughs> I wonder if I get that way with God sometimes. But what if I drop my defenses just for a moment, and he asked me, Dave, are you listening? Because there's, there's this one area in your life that I've been trying to talk to you about, but it just doesn't seem like you're listening about it. It kind of seems like you're tuning me out in that area. Your your heart is hard because you don't want to hear me talk about that. But what if I dropped my defenses and just invited the Holy Spirit to show me an area of my life where he wants that seed, not to be dormant anymore, but to be planted deeper into my heart and soul. The kingdom of heaven comes by hearing. Therefore, take heed how you hear. Soil number two. Second soil is the shallow soil, represents the shallow heart. These are people who receive the word at first, and at first they are very excited emotionally about this. Their response, though, is short-lived. Because it was emotional, when the emotions fade away, and they do fade away, their their commitment also fades away. They don't have the, the deep roots, and so as soon as any difficulties come, they cannot take the heat If Jesus can't take away these troubles, then why bother with him? What use is that? They like the benefits Jesus brings, but they don't like any of the trials or difficulties. No, Jesus has fair weather fans. Did you know that? This is a little scary, a little frightening. If I read this correctly, doesn't it seem like Jesus is saying there are certain people who thought they heard me, but they really actually didn't hear me? Yeah, you prayed a prayer, you walked down the aisle, or you came forward at a crusade, you made your decision for Jesus, but if you don't stick with it over time, probably the greatest evangelist during the Great Awakening was George Whitefield. And he used to preach to thousands and thousands of people. Very fruitful ministry, but they would ask him, you know, how many received Christ today at your crusade? And his standard answer was always, We'll see in a few years. Jesus is making disciples, not decisions. And don't get me wrong, it's not because you have to earn your salvation. It's it's just saying it takes time to show the true nature of your salvation to see if you persevere and show yourself genuine. The problem with the shallow soil, though, is they just want the blessings. They don't necessarily want the blesser. They, They would like Jesus to be their sugar daddy, not their king. They don't want God to actually be God in their lives. You know, One of the greatest books I've read is by Dallas Willard. And inside this book called Renovation of the Heart, he says this, wanting God to be God is very different from wanting God to help me. Wanting God to be God is very different from wanting God to help me. In other words, Jesus is not here just to help me meet my goals. He is here to show me how to rearrange my goals to become his goals. But these people, when they don't get what they want, they turn away. And and that's the shallow heart. I I think all of us at times can can struggle with shallowness in certain areas as well. When I'm going through a trial, I'm going through difficulties. That's not easy. Sometimes I'm just, you know, why me, God? Why me? But instead... Uh, maybe I should respond to God by saying, you know, God, what are you trying to teach me here? What are you trying to teach me? Help my roots to go deeper. Now, I see you want me to go deeper with you. Take me where you want me to go. That's the shallow heart. Soil number three. Soil number three is, is, is crowded with weeds and thorns, and so we'll just call that the divided heart. This soil is is, is divided. It, it, its priorities are out of whack. The, There are things in these people's lives that have become too important. And as a result, these people are actually miserable because they're double minded, both trying to be a Christian, but then equally occupied with the cares of this world as other material things have come in to replace the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, the really scary thing about this kind of crowded soil is it's not always obvious, right? I mean, even in the natural world, thorns do not choke suddenly. They choke gradually. It's a slow fade. This is exactly how the deceitfulness of riches works. We slowly desire more and more and more, and then before you know it, my heart is choked out by those desires. This is why Jesus warned us in Matthew chapter six, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other, but you cannot serve both God and money. That's the divided heart. Now, living in this country, surrounded by such prosperity in this part of New Jersey, I think this is a uniquely tempting situation for us. There is much competition for our hearts. I've got work goals and financial goals and hobbies and interests and all kinds of strategic planning, and all that stuff is fine and good unless I forget to put God first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. This is why John says in Revelation, you lost your first love. That's why the Bible begins with Genesis chapter one, in the beginning God. Those four words are not just the creation story, they're a recipe for the Christian life. In the beginning God, God first, God first, God first. And so maybe there's some things that are crowding my heart today and maybe I need to pray like the psalmist in chapter 86 where he prays, Lord, give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. There's actually some scholars who are divided over whether or not the third soil is a genuine Christian. Some people say, definitely not. Other people say, perhaps Jesus left this one intentionally ambiguous. And I don't know what you think about that, but here's what I know. I want to be the good soil. Don't you, when I stand before the Lord one day, I want to be the fruitful soil with the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, and self-control. I want to be this 60, 30, 60, 100-fold fruit-bearing plant for him. Pretty awesome, right? But here's the million-dollar question. How does that happen? I actually don't think he answers that question in this parable. I think i got to keep reading and we slowly begin to uncover the answer in another parable. In the middle of chapter 13, Jesus dismisses the crowds and he actually goes into a house. And at that point, his disciples come to him and he leans in really close and says, I want to tell you a couple more things. Listen to this very carefully. And I want you to listen to what he says with this third parable today, the, the parable of the hidden treasure. Come on, let me tell you a secret. This is so powerful. Listen closely to this last one. Let's look. Jesus says this, verse 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy sold all he had and bought that field. That's the last parable we're going to read now. Look at it very carefully. First, look at the word Treasure. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon for vast hordes of treasure and jewelry and so on to be buried in fields. If they had some, you didn't go down to the local Wells Fargo or Bank of America and take out a safety deposit box and put your you know, precious items in there. Instead, for safekeeping, they would often bury it in a place where no one else would know where it was except for you. But then what could happen is a person who might have buried it and then they might have died and not told anyone where it was. And then all of a sudden you're, you're there at the field and you know, you're digging around and you hear a clank or whatever. And all of a sudden you find this treasure. That's what happened to this guy. And all of a sudden the proper, property value goes way up. It reminds me of a friend of mine down in Louisiana. He owned this piece of property and, and they discovered after a couple decades of him living there, that it was there was a vast amount of, of natural gas in the shale below, below the land that he had, and someone gave him so much money just to buy the, the mineral rights for his, his, his property. That's something like what's going on here. All of a sudden, this property value goes way up in the buyer's mind. Jesus says, that's like what my kingdom is like. And this guy here It's how I want you to to be. This guy sells everything he has to buy this field. Now, once he owns the field, the treasure that was buried there becomes his possession. Now, what's the point of that? Don't miss the point. The point of this parable is not about business ethics. It's It's not about, oh, you know, was it really right for this guy to buy this field knowing the value secretly and not telling the owner why he was, what? no. To get lost in those kind of details is to completely miss Jesus's point. Jesus's point is very, very clear. The kingdom of heaven is of such incalculable value that it is worth you giving up everything to be in it. That's the point. Jesus wants me to be like the man. Now, in order for us to be like the man, it takes three steps. Here's step one. The appraisal. The appraisal has to do with value. Now, it's a word that denotes something's significance or something's worth. This can be somewhat subjective. For some things, it's it's a matter of personal preference. That's why nobody has exactly the same values. Like nobody can tell me exactly how much something I own is really worth to me because I might have personal reasons for that. But here's the question Jesus wants us to ask. What is most valuable to you? To you? Like if your house was on fire, What would you run in there and get? You got 60 seconds, what are you gonna get? Whenever I ask that question, people tell me, well, you know, there's maybe some of my mom's jewelry, or you know, a lot of times they go for the family photo albums, or a lot of times they say, you know, there's this one particular heirloom, and all those things are just talking about things that can't be replaced, right? That's what you go for. I was thinking about that question this week, and I was thinking, you know, what would I go for? And I thought, you know, if I got Julie and my girls out, I'm good. I'm good. That is what's most valuable. But spiritually speaking, Jesus wants to go further and he's saying, Why don't you have an audit of your spiritual value system to make sure it's in alignment with my values? In fact, a little while later, Jesus leans in and asks us this question that is just so haunting, and every generation has to answer this question What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What is your soul worth? What would you trade for your soul? You know, the first century Christians, they wouldn't trade their lives for their souls. This is the appraisal Jesus wants us to do. What do you value? Step two, the trade. In this story, the the man has to liquidate everything to buy this field. So he gives it all up, right? And those things that he gave up are not necessarily meaningless, right? He's selling everything and willing to make this commitment to pay this cost. Now, don't don't misunderstand. We don't literally buy our way into the kingdom. What what he means here is after we properly understand its value, we understand this is worthy of all of my life's devotion. He's worthy of my unconditional surrender. This man in the parable is willing to do everything. He's willing to give it all up. And the reason is because he knew there was far more in the field than that, which he was paying for the field. See, this is why, you know, missionaries make statements like, like Jim Elliott and or like Hudson Taylor. After he spent his life for decades in China serving the Lord, serving in the orphanage there, in the hospital, and and after he gets to the end of his life, after a lifetime of, of missionary service, someone asks him, Well, tell me a little bit about the sacrifices you made for Jesus. And Hudson says, I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. See, this is why Jim Elliott can say, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. in other words god's kingdom has unimaginable splendor and he simply asks for my total allegiance that's the trade that's the deal on the table and we all have to make a decision about that will you choose to live your life for his kingdom or will you live it for yourself that's that's the question will you make the trade if you're willing we go on to step 3 step 3 is the reward Jesus promised us in Matthew chapter 10, there is no one who has left house or brothers or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Therefore, brothers and sisters, like this man who sold everything he had, we come to Christ with great joy. He becomes the reward. He doesn't want your begrudging service. It is for your joy. I'll never forget John Piper's illustration about this, and he talked about flowers. He said, okay, wives, you'll get this. Let's imagine last, what was it, Thursday, your husband, see, I'm really good at this. Your husband uh, comes home with some flowers for Valentine's Day, and there he is. He brings you your bouquet of roses. Honey, here you go. Happy Valentine's Day. And she said, oh, sweetheart, thank you so much. Um, You know, why did you get me these flowers? And your husband says this, it was my duty. <laughs> Wrong answer, guys. If you said it like that last week, you blew it, you, you really screwed up, you really messed up. You gotta got 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 fix that. Now what's the right answer? Well, okay, honey, here's, here's the flowers. And your wife says, well, you know, how come you got me these flowers? Right answer, nothing makes me happier than to see you happy. Nothing brings me such joy than to see you have joy. That's the answer. Now, when you get to heaven and Jesus says, why are you here in my kingdom? You better not say, it was my duty. No. You better say like Peter, to whom else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. You are my soul's deepest desire. Nothing satisfies me like you. That's the right answer. That's why we serve, for our own joy. The kingdom of heaven needs to be on the throne of our hearts. We come for our joy, and we receive him as the reward, he is the treasure buried in the ground. When you understand who he was and is, when you appraise the treasure and its true value, when you live for his kingdom and him the great king, you will have that great reward and everything will begin to line up in your life. That is the purpose of Matthew 13. Let me illustrate it this way. My wife loves the Lion King. Movie, Broadway show. I think it's coming out next year with the live action thing. She loves it. Alex, my daughter, loves it. They, you know, it's a big, they're big fans. The whole point of the Lion King is that when the right king is on the throne, everything works out just fine. All the circles of life line up. When the wrong king is on the throne, everything falls apart. That is the purpose of Matthew chapter 13. That is what our Lord is trying to teach us. I want to be the king on the throne of your heart. That is the sacred place where I want to rule. Will you have me as your precious treasure? When you do, everything else will begin to come into alignment. You know, the hidden treasure isn't really money. It's a person. When you found him, he's all you need. As the song says, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Amen.